welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts, and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review because some platforms don't allow it, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and that is always appreciated to hear. In this week's show, we're going to start out in the first segment talking about the meltdown of the post-Trump icons on the left. And we're going to be talking about people like Andrew Cuomo, groups like the Lincoln Project, and all the praise heaped on Europe for allegedly handling COVID-19 better than America. I'll get into why those are wrong, why those you know people like Cuomo and the Lincoln Project are bad, and then also cover a few points that you didn't know on some of them. Next up in the second segment, we're going to go into the latest COVID-19 numbers, as usual, and then, after going through those, I'm going to talk about the biggest thing facing us next, what to do when we reach a post-COVID world. It's going to happen sooner than you think, and people are not prepared for that reality. So that's the agenda for today's show, and we can jump right in. So, one of the things I said in this past week's newsletter was that I had returned to my pre-election stance on where politics would head after the election. And this was true whether Trump won or lost, whether we had Trump or Biden in the White House. And while it's too early right now to say whether specifics of that strategy that I thought would pan out, the broad contours of what are going to happen for the next four years, basically, are beginning to take shape. And the first part is this. Donald Trump is going to continue to dominate both the political and news media landscape. And that's for two reasons. The first is because Republicans are just going to continue to rely on him. They need him to drive out these voters in key states. And the second is because the news media is desperate for more Trump coverage to maintain any form of ratings that they had during the four years of the Trump administration. And that's been especially true over the last two weeks because we've really had two things happening over the last few weeks. The first is the collapse of several prominent anti-Trump figures in politics. And the second is the continued focus of the media on Trump, despite him no longer being in office, despite him not having a Twitter account or being able to do anything on social media. So it's just him having to show up on TV, and that's driving, again, this media coverage. He's being able to do this without Twitter. And on the one hand, you have this needed and very necessary collapse of things like Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, you've got the implosion of the Lincoln Project, and then you've got Joe Biden's campaign promises already being in a to crumble. You hit people making, you know, funny memes and videos of, you know, where's my stimulus money? You're over here bombing Syria now, but we're not, we don't have our $2,000 checks. 
And then you have the the narrative, especially from the summer, last summer, of how Europe was supposedly so much better at handling COVID-19 than America. And then you have right now, America is just kicking the rest of the world. But when it comes to dealing with the vaccine, we are rolling out vaccines everywhere. We are going to have a fully vaccinated country before Europe even gets up out of its chair. So you have these things happening, which are all pretty big stories because it impacts a lot of people, with the exception of maybe the Lincoln Project. It's just those are people who have gotten a lot of, scammed a lot of money out of a lot of people. But what has dominated coverage instead has been the media's hyper-focus on a small conservative conference, CPAC. And it's because Donald Trump spoke there this past weekend. You have all these conservative figures there. You had the lead-up to it with people giving interviews, you know, what are you thinking about 2024? And, you know, Joe Biden's only two months into his administration, and we're already talking about 2024 because people don't want to talk about Joe Biden. The news media doesn't want to talk about him. They want to talk about Trump because Trump drives the ratings. The media, and this is true of both left and and right on the, on in these in politics. It's even true of this podcast. I've noticed if I put Trump at the beginning of an episode title, more of you will download it and look at it. It's it's kind of interesting how that works. But the media generally desperately needs Trump around as a punchable villain, as people have fluffed him up as having him around, because he's what drive ratings. But the implosion of all these others, these sort of anti-Trope figures, as other things are happening, is really instructive for why these groups and people existed to begin with. The media raised them up because they wanted something to hit Trump with during those years, and now that we have Biden, all of a sudden they're tossed to the side, and we're fine if they implode or we find out the truth about what they have said. Uh, Ross Douthat, he's a conservative columnist at the New York Times. He got at this in his weekend column, which is great, and I'll link to it. You can read it in the show notes. I'm going to go through part of it here, but you really should read the entire thing. But he bounces through some of these storylines over this past week talking through some of these these issues. He wrote, uh, Throughout the Trump presidency, and especially in the COVID era, there was a quest for figures that could be held up as embodiments of everything that Trump's opposition wanted to restore. Things like reason, technical competence, idealism. Over time, these figures took on the character of familiar dramatic archetypes. The good Republican, the heroic whistleblower, the beleaguered expert, the tough blue state governor, the wise and sophisticated sophisticated Europeans. The first month of the Biden era has been a hard time for these characters. A few have come through more burnished than before. If Mitt Romney was a good Republican before, now he's pretty much the best. But elsewhere, we're seeing archetypes of anti-Trumpism exposed as idols. Not just fallible, but failing. Not just imperfect, but corrupt. You may have noticed, for instance, the long overdue collapse of the heroic story around Andrew Cuomo, the tough blue state governor par excellence, whose pandemic news conferences inspired such fawning media coverage from late-night hosts who declared themselves admiring, quote, Cuomo-sexuals, from his own CNN host brother, that the governor wrote a book about leadership lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic while the pandemic was still going on. For the sake of the heroic story, the fact that Cuomo and Bill de Blasio jointly botched New York's initial response to the coronavirus was airbrushed out of the television history. 
The fact that the governor shipped potentially contagious patients back to nursing homes was reported on but didn't dent Cuomo's reputation because a cause celebre, mostly in the right-wing press, and bullying, the bullying, berating side of Cuomo that's suddenly front and center in these stories about his alleged cover-up of nursing home deaths numbers, well, that was portrayed as the seriousness of a reeling country that needed leadership. Only now is the more complete Cuomo story taking hold. Meanwhile, a similar deglamorization has arrived for the, quote, good Republicans in the Lincoln Project. The collection of Republican strategists dedicated to using their skills to bring down Donald Trump. They started with a sermon about saving the Republic, lapped up resistance lucre for their ad campaigns, and now... Well, it turns out they had an accused sexual harasser amongst their founders, a toxic workplace culture, and a mission that sought, quote, generational wealth for its leaders as assiduously as it sought Trump's defeat. Finally, the wheel has also turned for the wise and sophisticated Europeans, whose governments were once portrayed as having vanquished the pandemic with science, while Trump's America was a failed state where the coronavirus held unlimited dominion overall. That transatlantic contrast diminished when Europe experienced its own autumnal wave. But now, in the race to vaccinate, the whole narrative has been reversed. America's vaccine program looks far better than Europe's catastrophic non-rollout, and the only major European country doing really well is Britain, which rather famously brexited out of the continent's technocratic technocratic utopia not so long ago, although technocratic is probably the more accurate term there. So that's that's part of Douthat's column. It's a pretty good chunk of it, and you know, I, I agree with his assessments here. And the most telling part of the collapse of these various groups, these anti, anti-Trump, you know, foils for him, is that is the timing of, of this collapse. The failures of Cuomo, in particular, have been known about for some time. If you've listened to this podcast, you've heard me rant more than once that we've known Cuomo was wrong about what happened in those nursing homes. And his decision to send sick people into those nursing homes was the worst decision of the pandemic. I remember back in the spring when I read about this, I thought I had misread the story. I read several accounts because I did not believe that anyone would have ever done such a thing. Because if you recall, if you go back to the spring, the virus didn't land on the East Coast first. It landed on the West Coast. It landed in Northern California, and it landed in the Pacific Northwest. It was either Washington or Oregon was the other main site. And one of the early places that got infected was a nursing home. And we learned very rapidly from that one experience, and this is all before Cuomo made any of his decisions, this is when Democrats were still telling people to go out and celebrate in places like Chinatown and to ignore the xenophobic Trump for doing all these travel bans. They were all ignoring this, but we knew at that moment that it was a bad idea if this virus got into a nursing home because it was like shooting fish in a barrel. You could not allow a highly transmittable disease to get into a nursing home. We had to shut them down then. That was clear. So when Cuomo sent sick patients out of hospitals into nursing homes, that was an immediate red flag, and no one in the media in that exact moment called him out for it. They should have, 
but they didn't. This was one of those things that was known and purposely not covered because Cuomo was so useful in all these Trump narratives. But of course, that's not where things end. It's not just Cuomo. You also have the awfulness of the Lincoln Project and all the people involved and all their awfulness. Well, the problem is, is that we've known about them for a very long time. I admit, you know, if you're not in political circles or you don't follow political insider news, you may not know these people. But if you read political accounts of any of these types of things, you've known about these people. And the media only loved these guys because they attacked Trump with gusto, even though most of them, most people in the Blinken Project, had been kicked out of the Republican circles for years, some even decades. Uh, one of their founders, he, he was begging Trump for a job at the beginning of his Trump's administration and only went anti-Trump when he lost out on any chance in the White House. And now it's all falling apart because you have John Weaver, a Democrat who is a part of that organization. It's falling apart because of his predatory behaviors against young men. So this is all just a joke. We've known about these people for a very long time. In fact, John Weaver, the reason this is all coming apart is, is him preying on young men. Weaver and his media friends covered up his bad acts for years and decades I mean, seriously, you can go back and find references to this in old press reports with him. In 2004, I went and pulled this. So The Atlantic ran in 2004 a hit piece on George W. Bush's campaign manager, Karl Rove. They were trying to smear Rove as a backstabber and a, who spread false rumors and used extreme tactics to take other political operatives out and try to sink other candidates. And so Weaver was one of the people they said he was, un, he was unfairly attacking. So here he is in 2004. Here is the Atlantic calling, you know, blasting Rove for doing the following. So here it is. It said they said another example of Rove's methods involve a former ally of Rove's from Texas, John Weaver, who coincidentally managed McCain's bid for the presidency in 2000. Many Republicans' operatives in Texas tell the story of another close rates of sorts, a competition in the 1980s to become the dominant Republican consultant in Texas. In 1986, Weaver and Rove both worked on Bill Clement's successful campaign for governor, after which Weaver was named executive director of the state Republican Party. Both were emerging as leading consultants, but Weaver's star seemed to be rising faster. The details vary slightly according to which insider tells the story, but the main point is always the same. After Weaver went into business for himself and lured away one of Rove's top employees, Rove spread a rumor that Weaver had made a pass at a young man at a state Republican function. Weaver won't reply to the smear, but those close to him told me of their outrage at the nearly two decades old lie. Weaver was first made unwelcome in some Texas Republican circles, and eventually following McCain's 2000 campaign, he left the Republican Party altogether. He has continued an active and successful career as a political consultant in Texas and Alabama, among other states, and is currently working for McCain as a Democrat. Now, again, that is a piece smearing Rove, but not a word of what Rove said was untrue. You can tell which side of this that the journalists got their stories from. They were all pro-Weaver people because they were calling it lies. When, in fact, everything that Rove said was true. Rove correctly said, this is what Weaver is, this is what he is doing. But the Atlantic paints Rove as the bad guy here, and everyone in the media at the time hated Rove. They hated him all through the Bush years. 
And now the Lincoln Project is falling apart just because of this same guy. It's falling apart because of John Weaver and things that he has done along these same lines. And in 2004, the Atlantic helped protect him and smeared other people for trying to, to accuse him of this. I mean, John McCain banned Weaver from his funeral. Even McCain's daughter, Megan McCain, was recalling this exact same thing about how her father hated John Weaver. But, you know, because John Weaver is a Democrat and often critical of the Republican Party, he always got protection by the press, willing to give a free pass to anybody, claiming to be a former Republican, and but now just critical of his or her former party. If the beats of this story sound familiar, they should, because they also follow the broad contours of things like Me Too. This is what Weaver is. He's one of those same types of people, and the press, the national press here in the form of The Atlantic and others, protected him. They never wanted him. They liked having him around. They liked having him there to attack Republicans. And since he filled that role, they protected him. And they attacked anyone else who said anything bad about him. But now the Lincoln Project, which has no further use for them, for Democrats, is imploding because people have realized, oh yeah, he actually is awful. This is something people have known about for 40 years about John Weaver. This is not new. Karl Rove had Weaver nailed in 2004 in that story and in the 80s, and Rove wasn't the only one. There were many reasons that Republicans had kicked Weaver out of their circles. But only after Trump is voted out is the Lincoln Project called on the carpet for harboring these bad kinds of people, because Weaver's not the only one. That organization is filled with grifters up and down who are just trying to take money from people. They called it a way to get generational wealth for themselves. These people do not care about Donald Trump. They wanted him to win because it guaranteed that Democrats would continue to send them money. Now, on that part, I don't really care. If you're going to take money away from Democrats, it's not going to go against any Republicans. It's just going to enrich some of these grifters. I don't really care. But these are actually truly awful people, and it is good that they are burning down like this. I think the other thing here, because I could go off on them for a while, but Douthat also talks about the comparison of America on vaccines and the pandemic in Europe. Uh, Now, do you know how much ink has been spilled saying that Europe has handled the pandemic better than America? Because, I mean, if you really went up and started to count it all, it's just flat out almost nearly endless. And it's all wrong. Because Douthat only scratches the surface here talking about vaccines and a few things here. Uh, And Because here's a a fact. You can take this to the bank. Barring some awful manufacturing issue, and we'll get a little bit more into that, the United States is going to have enough vaccines by April to ensure that anyone who wants a vaccine will be able to get it free of charge and easily. That is not true in Europe. They have had a vaccine rollout that has failed at launch. Now remember, we've had Pfizer giving out vaccines here since since December, and Europe still doesn't have any form of a vaccine rollout. They've got nothing here going. The United States, the UK, Israel, these some of these other countries are lapping Europe on this point. And I know Fauci and the rest of the public health establishment is going around saying, you know, we need to mask up until 2022. I know Biden is saying everything is going to be bad until the end of the year. None of that's happening. The vaccine trends here in America are very clear. America is going to have a surplus of vaccines by the summer. And by a surplus, I mean more vaccines than there are people children and adults than in this country. And we're not even vaccinating kids yet. We're only vaccinating people 18 and up. And we'll get 
more on the numbers later, but if you only count the 18 and up crowd, we've vaccinated nearly 20% of the country. That's nearly one in five eligible Americans, and Europe has got nothing close to that kind of rollout. They're nowhere near those numbers. In fact, Ireland has imposed another lockdown, potentially going into May while they try to figure things out. Europe and the U.S. on the COVID numbers have basically tracked each other pretty closely, and anyone who claims otherwise at this point is just a straight-up liar, because I've got links. You can go to Our World and Data that has all this lined up. You can compare any country, you can compare a region to America, and you're going to see pretty similar results. Where the difference is coming in is that we have produced all the tests, we have produced all the vaccines, and now we're going to be over with this pandemic before Europe even gets out of its chair. So, the comparison, you know, this, this, this idea that the Europeans were always more technocratic and better at dealing with this pandemic than Americans is just false on its face. The data doesn't back it up. And you can go look at any of it. I've got some of it here in the show notes. You can go look at it. And probably the most, the proof positive point that you, you need to remember here is that the United Kingdom, who approved vaccines faster than even the United States, and of course Europe, they're well on their way to proving that Brexit was worth it on this one event alone because they got to ignore all of the European Union's demands on pharmaceutical companies, on how, to, how and when to approve these vaccines. The UK just approved them, and they're vaccinating people at a rapid pace. Everyone is still on lockdowns and trying to figure out how to do their rollouts, while the United States, the UK, and Israel in particular are all sitting over here saying, yeah, we're going to probably be done with this by summer. So that, you know, you can't sit here and say that these progressive technocratic countries are better because they're failing at the one thing they should be good at, and that is getting vaccines out to people. So the three best countries in the world, I said it already, I'm just going to reiterate it here. The United States, the UK, and Israel. It's not close with any other country. You may have some other small, dense countries, and Israel kind of counts there, but as far as large countries, it's the United States and it's the United Kingdom, and that's it. That's your best vaccinated countries right now. So, you know, all these top stories here, they're all happening this week, but what has the main focus been on? It's been on Trump at CPAC. There was you know, the day after Biden launched uh, the missiles into Syria, when, you know, he had his first major foreign policy thing here, the main headlines on Politico the next day were still Trump at CPAC. That's what they were covering. They were covering a couple of crazy House representatives on, on the Republican side, I, nothing on any of these other major stories. You know, there there are other things happening, I will admit that, but CPAC is not that important three, year, three or four years here out from an election. If you're covering this as an important event, it's because you want this to be an important event. You should be covering, I mean, it, it's astounding here that it's taking these sexual harassment lawsuits to get the focus to even be a little bit on Andrew Cuomo. It shouldn't require this you know, a few thousand people dying because of one of his stupid policies should be enough to keep the fire on, lit up on him. But that's not the fault. The you know, that's not the fact here. It's taken these sexual harassment claims to really bring out the the heat on Cuomo, which I'm fine with. He deserves it. But this should not be the only thing. And of course, you know, we have this COVID nineteen relief bill that also seems to be a disaster before it even be, seems passed. That also seems to be a little bit more important than CPAC. I don't know. Could just be me. But that's where we are on all these things. And that bill does look like a disaster, by the way. It looks like it's going to be a complete and total disaster in every conceivable way. 
particularly since it doesn't look like much of the money is going to fix anything right now, when you're, especially when you're looking at things like vaccines. So anyway, that's all for this segment. There's a lot more happening right now. The media is choosing to make Trump the story because they need him for ratings. That's why he's remaining the story here. And that's why I'm sticking with my pre-election prediction here, because it's going to give Trump the power that he needs to move forward. He doesn't need Twitter anymore. He has this natural force pushing him along. One of the polls coming out of CPAC was that 55% of Republicans said they would pick him for president if he ran again in 24. So I think the second was Ron DeSantis at 21%. So... You know, that, that's where we are on this right here. They need him, and because Trump wants the attention and he doesn't have social media, he'll give it to them. And that's probably going to end up doing the same thing that it did in 2016. It'll choke out all the oxygen in the field, and Trump will be able to run again. Of course, the irony with all that, this will be my last point as we wrap up here, the irony of all that is this. If Twitter and Facebook and these others are seriously going to keep Trump banned off their platforms, that's ironically going to help him because if you look at what most conservatives say about Trump, the thing that they most, they least want to see from him is his tweeting. And so if he runs for president again and he's banned off Twitter, he pretty much could run Joe Biden's campaign against Joe Biden where he doesn't say anything. He just runs against what Joe Biden has done for four years. And based on how things are going right now, Biden doesn't look like he's going to be able to negotiate with Congress and he doesn't look like he's going to have do anything good with these executive orders. So... That's going to look like a lot of broken promises to a lot of people who only chose Joe Biden as a compromise candidate. And if he only chose him as a compromise candidate and he's breaking his promises, not much reason to support him again. And Republicans only needed 90,000 votes, 90,000, to retake all three branches here, the, the Senate, the House, and the White House. That's what stood between them and having total control of the government. So the margins here are very thin. And I think we're going to be in, in for an interesting four years here on that front. So, again, that's all for this. When we get back, we're going to dive into the COVID-19 update. And, again, check out that Dothic column. It's really great. So I've got it linked in the notes. And we're back with the COVID-19 update that we do every week here, going through all the latest numbers. So with the COVID-19 tracking project going offline here in the next couple of weeks, I'm having to change up a little bit. I'm doing this segment. I don't have to do it this week because they're not going to stop tracking data until March the 7th, I believe it is. So the the different data source that I think I've lined up that I'll be using will be the CDC's official database. I haven't used them up until now just because I don't like quite the way they have their information organized, but they have a lot of the same information, so we should be able to run this segment pretty smoothly after that. So that's just a heads up. If you notice no more of the tracking project, that will be why. Uh, so after dropping into the 1.25 million test range per day, testing has rebounded this week into the 1.5 to 1.7 million tests per day. Again, all the drawdown in testing this last week was due to the winter storm. Things have rebounded. Uh, however, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, uh, we should expect testing to start dropping in the near term over the next one to two months because the more people who are vaccinated, the less necessary testing will become. You don't need to test people who are already immune to this, and people are not going to be seeking out tests just to make sure they can attend an event. So again, we'll get into this in a second, but watch for testing to start dropping sometime soon. 
the positivity rate on tests has continued to trend down. After free-falling for weeks, this number has dropped again from 4.9% down to 4.6%. So it's dropping. It's just a little bit lower. Part of that's due to you have, you have more testing coming in here. You have states coming back online, probably reporting a few more of their backlog positivity rates. Uh, so still, though, it is good news to watch this number continue to drop. And if it is falling like that, that means the virus is continuing to retreat, and this is all a good thing. So 4.6% is the positivity rate nationally overall, and that is a good thing. Uh, during the previous lulls, when we were not during a surge of the virus, so this would have been in between the spring and the summer, and then in between the summer and the fall when we had these times when things weren't surging, this is about where we were at that point. Around the 4.5% range was where it was at its lowest point. I believe the absolute lowest point was around 4.3%, so we are very near to hitting an all-time low, even with uh, higher testing, which is an astonishing thing to see here. So with that, the number of new daily cases, so this is just the raw number of cases we're getting each day, that has fallen but mostly plateaued a little bit here. So uh, we the seven-day average on new cases sits at 54,000 a day, which is well below, again, the winter peak high of 250,000 in a single day, which was at the beginning of January. So this has dropped really quickly, and we had a one-day high of nearly 300,000. And we, we haven't seen numbers this low, where we're just bringing in 54,000 a day since October. Uh, again, because we have more testing than we did during the summer, literally double the number of tests, it makes sense that we have more cases than we did during the summer. So during the summer, around fifty to 60,000, bringing in that many, that would have been you know, in and around a peak area for that time. Right now, this is a lull for us, but that can also be explained by the fact that we have a lot more tests bringing it in, which is a very good thing to have this many, this much more tests, but also have that low of the positivity rate. So, 50 to 55,000 new cases a day is far more manageable than 250,000. Uh, the reason, though, that I continue to be unconcerned about those numbers plateauing right now is because hospitalizations are continuing to drop like a rock. The number of active hospitalizations we have due to COVID-19 sits below 50,000 now and is at 47,352. That was the Sunday total, and that is the lowest number since... Uh, that's the lowest number we've had since below the... So both the spring and the summer, when we peaked, had those peaks, they peaked at 60,000. So we're now below the spring and summer peaks, and we're now well below where we were at any point in the downswing here. So hospitalizations, the, the trend line on that is that they're going to continue falling. And as I said last week, the true test here is going to be the 30-35,000 mark. That was where we hit lows in hospitalizations after the spring and summer surges. That is sort of where we plateaued out. Those, you know, those surges, when they happened, we peaked at 60,000, and then our lulls were around 30,000. So you had this number get cut in half. So we're getting close to hitting that 30 to 35,000 range. In fact, we will probably hit it at some point. We'll be in and around that sometime this week, if not the next week. So if we can get into that all-time low range, the reason I'm watching that is the question is, can we drop below that? If we can get below, particularly 30,000, if we can get below that number, 
that tells you that we're truly on the downswing of this virus and vaccines are really the driving part here because if people are no longer going into hospitals, it doesn't matter how many cases you get in a day. If people aren't having severe cases and aren't going to hospitals, then it really doesn't even matter how many new cases you have a day. So the thing to watch is hospitalizations. If hospitalizations continue to drop, then the new cases a day become irrelevant because that mean, that really tells you that those new cases are either asymptomatic or just mild and don't matter. So that's why hospitalizations are the more important number to watch here. The new cases don't matter if hospitalizations continue to drop. The seven-day average on deaths remains mostly unchanged at around 1,900 a day. Of course, that's still far too high, but it's also below the surge numbers at around 3,200 a day. So this number is going to start coming down here again soon, and that's it should have probably started coming down this week, but we had this delay here where states were having to report backlogs of numbers. There was a spike midweek, so and and that was really you, you can chalk that up to the winter storm. I was expecting that to happen. It did happen. It's come back down. I would expect deaths to start dropping because hospitalizations are also dropping, and the bulk of your deaths are going to come out of those severe cases and your hospitalizations. So you need hospitalizations to come down in order for your deaths to come down because deaths are the laggiest of the lagging indicators. And the few, the more those start to come off, the more, I mean, the less pressure your healthcare system has on it. Vaccinations, though, that, that's the brightest of the bright spot. It is the absolute best news in all of this. Vaccinations continue to be an absolute astonishing bright point. The United States has administered 75.2 million vaccination doses across the country. The United States is accounting for 31% of all vaccines administered on a global scale. One out of every three people getting a vaccine in the world are Americans. 15% of the United States population has had a vaccine dose. 195 or around 20% if you round up to only including the adult population which is nearly one in five Americans having had a vaccination dose. Those are great numbers because, if you want to compare here, we've had 28.3 million people with a confirmed COVID-19 case and 75.2 million have had a vaccination dose. So far more people have had a vaccination dose than have had the virus. And I think this is even true if you account for asymptomatic spread of the virus, which is going to be about 40% higher than your confirmed number. We're still going to be trying to figure out exactly how many people have had this thing, but that's about where we are. So if you just if you stick with the confirmed numbers here, the confirmed positive cases that the CDC is reporting and the confirmed number of vaccination doses, that gives you 100 million people around who have had some form of immunity against this virus right now. It's a minimum of either having had the virus or having had at least one dose of a vaccine, which is probably going to give you some form of immunity here. So that's 100 million people who have some form of immunity. And it's the end of February. We hit this by the end of February. And we only started vaccinating people at the very end of December, right there in de- right there at Christmas. I mean, people were criticizing the rollout then, but, but I kept saying you needed to be patient because we were sitting around Christmas and New Year's, which was going to muck up how many vaccinations we could do and how many numbers were going to be reported. People were freaking out for those two to three weeks, and all you had to do was just be patient, let the holidays pass, and then the numbers came in, and they came in in a hurry. And they're continuing to increase. 
Right now, we're averaging 1.75 million vaccinations a day. But the real news here, aside from that average, is that the last three days in a row, the last three days in a row, we have vaccinated more than 2 million people in consecutive days. So with the vaccination supply set to expand over the next two weeks, you, know, you have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine dropping, you have Pfizer expanding the number of vaccines it's going to be delivering. I really do expect us to be far closer to the, the mark that I set at the beginning of the vaccination push. Was I, I kept saying we need to hit 3 million vaccinations a day or possibly more. Uh, and, and supply is not going to be an issue here for much longer. We're going to be flooding the supply chains with all the vaccinations that can get out. So we're about to move into a time of overabundance of the vaccine supply. And in reality, if you want a vaccine, I suspect you're going to be able to get one by April, and that's going to be anyone, I think. You're going to be able to get one by April, barring you know some massive manufacturing issue. And... It, the, the key here is that we have three vaccines on the market now. So if one vaccine maker has a manufacturing issue, that's not going to really... It'll put a dent in the number we can do a week, but it's not going to put a dent in our capacity to continue to vaccine people. We are now diversified across uh, some across two uh, vaccines that are using MRA, mRNA technology and one that is not. So... We have a diversified portfolio here of vaccines. If we wanted to, and I think we should, we should also allow AstraZeneca to get their vaccine in the, in the mix, and that would give us four, and would really diversify our portfolio of vaccines and ensure that manufacturing will not be an issue here. Because if you go back and look, say, at, at the polio vaccine, when it came out, we just had Salk's polio vaccine, and at one point there was a manufacturing issue about 200,000 defective vaccines came out, and that led to people actually getting polio. And so you don't want that to happen. And with three here, at least, I'm not concerned with a manufacturing issue. Because a major, when people are saying, you know, well, this could happen, but, you know, you, you knock on wood, you don't want that manufacturing issue to pop up. The worst case scenario is that somehow all three of these companies go down at the same time. That would be a worst case scenario. More than likely, though, you would see something where one of them has a defective batch. And because they're watching that real closely and we have much better ways of catching that now, I'm not as concerned with something like that happening. But, you know, it is something to keep in the back of your mind. It's something that's happened in the past. It's certainly something that could happen now. Uh, but again, manufacturers, they've delivered 96.4 million vaccine doses. 96.4 million doses, meaning... This next week, when those new deliveries start arriving, we're going to surpass the 100 million mark here, where 100 million vaccine doses have been delivered. And we're going to hit that by practically really here March 1st. So at the end of February, Pfizer and Moderna by themselves have delivered nearly 50 million doses each. I'm splitting it up evenly between them. It's not quite evenly, but if you're trying to think it through, that's about what has happened here. So all in all, the news continues to be great on the vaccine front. And, you know, this is, I, I said last week that this was the end of the winter surge. And we're now moving from end of the winter surge to end of the pandemic. And America is going to be going back to normal very soon. And when I say very soon, I really do mean the next few months. And we're going to hit this faster than anyone anticipates. I know Fauci and Biden are, are you know, all the doom and gloom. I know that's what they're saying. But the numbers on these vaccines do not lie. 
we're going to have more vaccines delivered. At worst case scenario, by the end of July, I know for a fact that Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson are going to have delivered more than 400 million vaccine doses to America. Period. We're going to have more vaccine doses than we have people, and that's going to be more than enough to get us to herd immunity. And so at the worst case scenario, I know this is going to happen by then. In reality, I know by about the end of March, beginning of April, these manufacturers are going to deliver another 130 million. So that's going to happen here over this next month. So if you want a vaccine dose, 130 million are coming over the next 30 days. That's just March. And we already have 175 million doses already going out here. So you add that to that, you're already talking well over, you know, 200 million doses there. Again, America only has 330 million people. We're not vaccinating children right now because we don't have a child vaccine ready to go. That's probably going to arrive sometime in the fall. Again, though, schools should still reopen. That is not an impediment to reopening schools. So... That's where we are. The numbers dictate that this is where we're going. We know how many vaccines are coming. We know the manufacturers are not only, they're not only just hitting their marks, they're accelerating them. Pfizer and Moderna have both accelerated their, their vaccination manufacturing. They're trying to pump them out faster. Because you've got to remember, these people aren't just trying to vaccinate America. They've got the rest of the world they've got to hit. So they've got markets. They've got places to sell this stuff. So that, you know, they're going to hit their marks, they're going to get them out the door faster, and they are incentivized to do this faster. So that's where we are. Which brings me to the last point that I want to make here on COVID-19, and that is this, the word normal. We are heading back to normal much faster than anticipated. Uh, Peggy Noonan had a great weekend column in the Wall Street Journal, I'll link to it in the notes, and she was talking about how cities, New York in particular, won't be going back to normal anytime soon. They've been irre irrevocably changed by this experience. And she writes the following. She says, You can know something yet not fully absorb it. I think that's what happened in the pandemic. It is a year now since it settled into America and brought such damage. Half a million dead, a nation in lockdown, a catastrophe for your public schools, we keep saying, quote, the pandemic changed everything, but I'm not sure we understand the words we're saying. It will be decades before we fully appreciate what the pandemic did to us, and I mean our entire society, our culture, power structures, social ways, economic realities. We'll see it more clearly when we look back from 2030 and 2040. A lot is not fully calculable right now, and some problems haven't presented themselves. One is going to be the profound psychological impact on some young people, how anxious and frightened this era will leave them, even how doom-laden. Kids five and seven years old were trapped in a house surrounded by screens, and the screens said germs and death and invisible carriers. The pictures were of sobbing people on gurneys. We should be especially concerned about kids who are neglected and have no calm in the house because they were left most exposed to the endless vibrations of adults on those screens and no schools or teachers to help them. But we're in a transformational time. Some things that might have changed inch by inch over the next few inch days, over the next few decades, were transformed in one large, incredible 12-month shift. So many institutions will have to be nimble and far-sighted now, or they won't survive. They're going to have to be creative and generous and leave old intransigencies behind. Uh, 
To lead in times like this will require the eyes of an artist who sees the broad shape of things, not an analyst who sees data points. Look at the cities. I'm not sure we see the implications of what has happened here there. In New York, we are witnessing, for the first time in a century and a half, the collapse of the commuter model. You had to be in the magic metropolis if you were going to be in the top of your profession, whether that was finance, theater, law, or whatever. Many couldn't afford to live in the city because it's where the top money people were, so they lived in the near outside. New Jersey, Long Island, and Connecticut. That is what my people did when they came to America a century ago, settling in Brooklyn and commuting to work as cooks and maids in the great houses of Manhattan. But now you don't have to be in the city. The top people are everywhere. You can be pretty much home and be the best. The office towers of Midtown are empty. In the past year, the owners of great businesses found how much can be done remotely. They hadn't known that. They hadn't, found, had to, they hadn't had to find that out. They don't have to pay that killer rent for office space anymore. People think it would all snap back when the pandemic is fully over, but no. A human habit broke. A new way of operating has begun. People will come back to the office life to some degree, maybe a, a significant one, but not everything can be done remotely. People want to gather, make friends, and instill a sense of mission. But it will be never be what it was. She ends her, her column by saying the following, which I think is an important jumping-off point here. She says, No one can stay fixed in the old world, in the before times. We're in the after times, and every stakeholder, as they say, is going to have to be generous, patient, and farsighted in a way they've never been before. That's the kind of bargain people who know how to survive make. We're in a battle for our survival and should start absorbing this. And I think she's fundamentally correct on this point, because that's, that's what's about to happen. America is about to surge into a world where just about anyone who wants a vaccine is going to have it, and they're going to have it by April or June and July at the latest. But think about where we are right now versus where we're going to be. In two to three months, there's going to be no need for any lockdown order. There's not going to be any need for any public restriction, and there's not going to be a need to control what people are doing. I mean, sure, you can continue to tell people to be careful, to wear masks in places. You know, there's going to be places where the vaccine hasn't been reached yet in the country, and it makes sense to wear masks and be careful for those people. But, but, people are also going to be fully vaccinated. And our culture is so hopped up right now, people are so hyped about shaming people for not, quote, following the rules, not wearing masks, all those videos from last summer where people were absolutely blasting each other for not doing this or not doing that, trying to get people fired. And that is still present. And people are going to continue to do these types of things, even with people fully vaccinated. You're going to have people, and these are particularly, these are going to be people on the left. You're going to have people who, they're going to still be avoiding crowds, they're going to be wearing masks, and they're going to be doing all these things even though there's no medical or public health reason to do so. After, be forced, after being forced to hunker down for a year, we're about to be forced back into a normal situations again, and no one, absolutely no one, is prepared for it. As Noonan calls it, we're entering the after times, and 
the messaging mistake here of the Biden of Biden campaign, the Biden administration, and Fauci and others is that they've made it seem like the aftertimes are still a long ways off, and that's just simply not true. It's on our doorstep right now. Again, 75 million plus people have had a vaccination right now. That is, people who have already had it. We're going to pump out 130 million over the next month. The aftertimes are coming right now. They're on our doorstep. We have to think about this right now. And if you don't let people do what they want to do, whatever they want to do, and you don't do that very soon, they're going to start disregarding absolutely everything that a public health official says, and rightly so. They will have reason to do that because they're going to know, I've been vaccinated, I don't have to listen to you on this point anymore because it does not make sense to do this. Because if everyone is protected from a vaccine and hospitalizations and deaths are no longer a big problem, then there's no longer public health risk from having these restrictions. We've moved, and this, is one of my, this has been one of my absolute great annoyances for the better part of a year now. We've moved the goalposts a lot. And by we, I think I really more in particular mean here Democrats and the progressive left. So let's remember, lockdowns and restrictions are about one thing and one thing only. Protecting the healthcare system from getting overwhelmed from patients. If everyone gets sick at once, more deaths are going to occur because those people cannot get adequate care. Flattening the curve was about preventing the spread of sickness and preventing that from all happening at once. Flattening the curve meant spreading that sickness out across your society over time to ensure that adequate care was a result and that deaths are reduced. The bad form of this was in New York, where they did not flatten the curve. You had all these people get sick at once, the hospitals were overwhelmed, and people died. And then you also had on top of that Cuomo issuing his nursing homes order. Flattening the curve looks far closer to what happened in the summer, because we had the exact same peak in hospitalizations in the summer as we did in the spring, but that peak happened as spread out across the entire country. Really, that was mostly the South, but even with that, it was spread out. It was not localized to one area, because when 60,000 people were in the hospital with COVID-19 in the spring, the bulk of that was all in the Northeast. When 60,000 people were hospitalized in the summer, that was spread out a little bit more across multiple states. When we hit 130,000 over the winter, that was also spread out, and that was why we felt the strain on that one, because that was the true spike of the virus everywhere. It hit everyone. It did not matter if your state had a lockdown order. It didn't matter whether your state had a mask mandate. The virus went everywhere in the winter. Flattening the curve was about making sure that we were prepared for that. And we were. We were able to give ourselves time to perform, to create tests, and more. And in truth, the March and April lockdowns were more about dealing with the unknowns. You can go back and listen to my podcast from that time, read my columns and newsletters. It was all about what we didn't know. We didn't know what COVID-19 was. We didn't know how fast it spread. We didn't know how to treat it. We couldn't even test for it. That was the big thing at, at March that was driving everyone crazy. We couldn't test for this and find out whether or not a person had it. And we didn't even have a full symptom profile. So 
we had to lock down because we didn't we knew a pandemic was on our doorstep and we didn't know what it was or how to deal with it. Once we had the ability to at a minimum test for it and find out where it was, we, we had to reopen at that point because we couldn't afford to let people lose their jobs and not be able to go back and do anything. And that, that's still a problem. You can't have people lose their, their jobs and their livelihoods like this. Lockdowns right now are only an option if you have a direct threat to your healthcare system. But what most liberals have done is move that to locking down to prevent any spread at all, which is not what flattening the curve ever meant in any case or any situation. Because one of the things I see is that a lot of progressives and liberals love to praise New Zealand, and they do this all the time. They praise this little island nation because they handled COVID-19. And they started, New Zealand started another lockdown this week because they got, and let you count this here, they got one positive test in the whole country. One. They've started lockdowns now five or six times based off one or, or no more than a handful of positive tests. That is not a sustainable strategy. If you think the United States should lock down to prevent any cases, you are crazy because that is not an attainable goal. It's not sustainable either, but most importantly, it's not an attainable goal. And so in the process, if you try to get that, you would destroy your entire economy and you would produce a situation where you'd eventually have a situation where your healthcare system is not under any threat at all, and you're still under a lockdown, which is not what flattened the curve or the lockdown strategy meant. This is not a praiseworthy strategy. It's nonsense on stilts, and it utterly undermines the very nature of flattening the curve. But that's where the left has really gone wrong with all this goalpost moving that they've done. They fundamentally undermine the proven strategy because flatten the curve is a good strategy. It works. There's a reason we went to it because we we knew. I mean, it is provable. It is literally provable, and it makes sense. But it is not about getting you to COVID zero. COVID zero is an impossible concept, and I don't think we're ever going to actually hit it. We've virtually eliminated things like polio. You don't really hear about polio cases, but if you look at the figures, we still have a few hundred polio cases that pop up from year to year. It's impossible to completely eradicate any disease. Setting people's expectations that we're going to have zero cases of anything is deeply irresponsible. And so right now, in a few months, these are the expectations people have. They have this expectation of COVID zero, but they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that this is the false reality that they presented, their supporters, because progressives and liberals are going to be the one that freak out this time. It's not going to be the conservative, you know, these a lot of these right-wing nuts that you saw over the summer who didn't want to wear a mask and all these other things. It's going to be the left here that's going to have the freakouts, and they're going to try to continue shaming people and telling people to wear a mask, wear double masks, don't get in groups, and they're going to be doing this to people who are fully vaccinated and people who are fully vaccinated and aren't endangering anyone because... The key thing we've learned about these vaccines is that, I mean, the Johnson & Johnson one, it's almost a complete and total guard against severe cases. There was 100% protection from hospitalizations and death. If people aren't going into the hospitals with, with a vaccine, this is not a public health problem anymore. You have to treat it then like it's like a really bad cold or it's the flu or, or something like that. You, because at that point, if people are vaccinated, they're not having a bad case anymore, and that is not a danger to public health and we should not have lockdowns. Lockdowns are not about preventing cases. It's about preventing a threat to your healthcare system. And so we're about to hit this point now where we're going to be in the, you know, quote-unquote, after times, 
and that's coming in a few months here. It's coming in, it's probably coming in April. That's when you're really going to see the start for the real push here. And the closer summer gets, the more people are going to say this makes no sense to have any lockdown. And if there is a single state, city, or section of the country still in a lockdown in April or May, there should be riots at that point because it doesn't make sense. And so people aren't prepared to understand that, particularly on the left. They do not understand that. They're not prepared to understand that because they feel safe knowing that they're, they're, you know, their technocratic leaders are making all these decisions and they're not prepared for that coming up. They're not prepared for things. You know, I keep saying people are not prepared to understand that tests are going to drop very soon. We do not need 2 million people tested a day if everybody's vaccinated. That's just not something you needed. We don't need that many. So tests are going to drop. You're probably going to see people freak out about that. They, people are going to understand that we're going to have so many vaccines in America, so many doses, that other countries, particularly Europe and some of these other countries, they're going to be mad at us and say that we're hoarding vaccines for ourselves. These same people, they're not going to understand that schools are not going to have a single reason. When we hit September, you know, August and September of 2021, there's not going to be one reason that a single school union in this, in this country can present for being closed, because there's not going to be a threat. People are going to be vaccinated and ready to go, and this thing is not a threat to kids, especially if you have your adult population vaccinated like this. So schools are going to have to be reopened. Anyone who says otherwise is denying reality on this point. But this is going to be the next freakout we're going to have. You're already seeing it a little bit among the most elites, with you know the people like Fauci and others saying, well, this is going to go the rest of the year. You still need a double mask. You know, we're going to set restrictions on what you can and can't do even after you're vaccinated. And the thing about that, and I've harped on this several times, yes, you need to be cautious immediately after getting vaccinated. There's a period there of about two to four weeks where you need to be careful because you can still get it. Well, you, you have to give your body a, a chance here to allow that vaccine to work and build up immunity. That takes a little bit of time. In the case of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, it takes a little bit longer than the others. It's still going to happen, though. You just have to give your body that chance to do it. But people aren't prepared to understand that. They're not prepared that we're about to enter a post-COVID world, and we're about to be thrown into it because these vaccines are not slowing down. You're going to see hundreds of millions of people vaccinated here very, very soon, but this is still going to be the next freakout we're going to have. Now, you know, if you've been listening to me, you kind of have have had a better idea on this because I've been far more optimistic on this point. And now with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, my my optimism is through the roof because we have three vaccines here. We could still have a fourth if if we finally approve AstraZeneca, and we should. And that would mean this thing's really going to end. It's going to end real quick, and it's getting real swift. So if we get a fourth here, you know, Katie, bar the door, because that's the end of of this pandemic right there. So... I think you should be very optimistic right now. You should be looking forward to getting this one of these vaccines because this is this is the end of it here. And if you're conservative and this is your and you're optimistic like I am, you need to start talking to your liberal friends right now because they are the ones who are not prepared for this because they have talked themselves into this pessimistic corner where they don't believe anything good can happen out of this. And it's just not true. And that's where we are. So that's all I've got for that uh, with the light item this week. It is brought to you by Justice Neil Gorsuch. In an interview this past week, he, he was definitely explaining the, portent, the importance of things like separation of powers and why separation of powers is more important than a bill of rights. That may seem counterintuitive to you. So I wanted to share this. It's a really great clip. Pretty short here, so I'll let him explain that point. 
only a third of Americans today can name the three branches of government, let alone why we have three branches of government and how they protect individual liberty. James Madison, who wrote the Constitution, who wrote the Bill of Rights, he said, I can write these promises down on paper. Freedom of speech, those are all good things. But if we don't get the structure of government right, those promises aren't gonna be worth the paper they're written on. Margaret, you can see many countries that have mimicked our Bill of Rights. If you ask me my favorite, I'd have to go with North Korea's. It's, re it's really good. It, all, everything in ours, plus you have a right to free education, free medical care, and even a right to relaxation. But what good are those rights if the power all resides in one person's hands or one group's hands, or is all in, concentrated in one place? Then those rights don't mean very much. It's the separation of powers that keeps us free. So then in the context of the separation of powers, why is it not the Supreme Court's job to legislate? Okay. Well, with all due respect to my judicial colleagues, nobody elected us. We are not representative of the people. We're not answerable to the people. We're perfectly suited for the job of interpreting the law, holding trials, deciding facts. That's what the judiciary is really good at. Writing laws to govern 330 million Americans across a continental nation, it's not what we were designed to do. You would never give that job. Who would design a constitution that gives that job to nine old, I can say that now, people sitting in Washington? You're the youngest among them. Well, no, no, but nobody would write such a constitution, Margaret. Nobody. And the Constitution gives the power to write new laws to the people's representatives who are accountable to the people so that they can make those laws, change those laws, and compromise. So that's Justice Neil Gorsuch explaining the concept of separation of power. So if you've never heard that explained, I think he does a really good job of doing that. He's also really channeling Antonin Scalia right there, who repeated a lot of that same thing. So that is why separation of powers is vitally important, because if one person has all the power, it's harder to keep your rights protected. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you'd like to enjoy it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.